Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come into your presence. I come into your presence very mindful of our need for you. We come as people who are dependent upon you, not just dependent upon you because of the fall, but dependent upon you for our very existence. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. The only reason that we take the next breath that we do, the only reason our heart takes its next beat is because you give it, you grant it graciously to us. So Father, in and of ourselves, we come before you with no rights, with no demands. The only thing that we deserve from you is hell. And yet because of Jesus, you have given us all good things. You have given us yourself. You have given us your spirit. And so we pray that he would come now. It's not enough for us to just show up it's not enough for us to just try to faithfully preach and pray and sing the word back to you. You must come and wield the sword of the Spirit, your word, so that it has its effect upon this preacher, so that it has its effect upon the listeners. 
And so we pray that you would come and do this. We pray that as your word is preached, Father, that your people would hear the voice of Jesus. And as your sheep, they would follow him, the great shepherd of our souls. So we now entrust ourselves to you, Father. We sit under your word, knowing that it makes us uncomfortable. But come and search and know our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us and show us how Jesus is enough for us. We ask this in his great name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, um, you know that as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, last week we saw specifically that God is sovereign over all of the times of our lives. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to um, gather stones. There's a time to throw stones away. And we saw that while we are the actors that act these things out, God is the author who has written all of our days out before even one of them comes to be. And so we saw that God is the one who is sovereign over all things. He is the one who is in control of every little detail that happens around us. All the little details that we aren't even aware of. And so if you're a thinking person at all, the question that you're probably asking yourself as I say that, the question that you were probably asking yourself last week if you were here is, well, if that's true, if God is in control of all things, then what about evil? What account can God give for all of the evil that's in the world? What's the explanation for that? And so right away, as soon as we start to talk about God's sovereignty and what's happening in the earth, we run into a perennial problem that has been dealt with throughout the ages. It's a problem that the philosophers refer to as the problem of evil. And essentially, here's the problem. If God exists and he's sovereign and good, then he has the power and he should have the desire to get rid of all evil, to eradicate all evil, to destroy all evil. But since evil exists, and we see it all around us, then God must not exist. It proves that there isn't a God. Now frankly, I don't think that this argument is very difficult to defeat intellectually, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that this morning. But what makes this argument so difficult for us is that when we hear it presented to us, we feel the weight of it, don't we? And the reason we feel the weight of this question is because we have an innate sense, a built-in sense of justice, of justice. We know when something is right. We know when something is good or when something is bad. We have this built-in sense that the good guys should win and be rewarded and the bad guys should lose and be punished. And so we say to ourselves, if God has the power to do it, then why doesn't he? Why don't we see that happening? Because if I was all powerful, if I was God, I would have eradicated evil yesterday. So why doesn't he? I remember feeling the weight of this question uh, when, I, when September 11th happened. You remember where you were when those towers fell, when you heard the news for the first time? I was a high school student. I was sitting in the, in the family dining room, eating breakfast, watching with tears in my eyes as the planes crashed into the towers and exploded. I remember watching 
with disgust and a pit in my stomach that, that wouldn't go away as the New York skyline filled with smoke. As we saw the pictures of our countrymen and women falling to their deaths from the top of the towers. And for the first time in my life, I, I understood what our, the World War II generation, our predecessors must have felt like when they heard the news and saw the video reels of Pearl Harbor. And I'm telling you, what I wanted to do at that moment, I wanted to gear up, I wanted to go and find out who had done this and make them pay. I remember the draft was open. I thought my brother was gonna have to go and I'm like, I'm signing up. Mom and dad, you're gonna sign me up. If he goes, I'm going. I wanna, I wanna do this. The sense of justice. I wanted to make sure that they paid for it. And as the years have gone by, if you're anything like me, you've read the accounts of our servicemen and women who have died for justice. And it seems like each one of their deaths seemed to add to the sense of injustice. God, when are you going to make them pay? When will you mete out justice on our oppressors? And then if I can be honest with you, just last month, on May 2nd, when I heard the news, I was in my car, I had turned the radio on, I heard the news that we had finally killed Osama bin Laden. You can ask my wife, this is the honest to goodness truth, I rejoiced. I was so excited that God had used the army, the, the, our military men and women, as a tool to mete out justice. <laughs> my wife will tell you this is true. I went and put camo on. I put all my camo on. I was like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, it's true, I did. Now, the next day, I had to repent because there wasn't really any remorse at all for the fact that I was rejoicing in the death of the wicked. And I need to repent of that. Why? Because God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked either. But you know what I didn't repent of? I didn't repent of my joy in seeing justice met out on the wicked. I didn't repent of that. And you know what? We have all got hurts and wounds and injustices in our lives that we're waiting for the Lord to heal and make right. And I want you to hear this. Desiring for justice to be done is not a bad thing. It's not. Because we've, we've all been sinned against. We've all been victims of gossip or slander. We've all been used and abused by others. Some of us have even done that to each other within this congregation. I mean, all we have to do is look around at the world to realize that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so we find ourselves crying out along with Job, behold, I cry out, violence! But I am not answered. I call for help! But there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope, he is pulled up like a tree. I wonder, brothers and sisters, is that where God finds you this morning? Do you feel the weight of the problem of evil as you live your life in this world, longing for justice to be done, and wondering, Lord, when is this ever gonna happen? I have no hope at all. Because you see, the problem of evil seeks to question and throw into doubt. What it seeks to question and throw into doubt is nothing less than the very character of God himself. 
Because as soon as people start struggling with this, theologians throughout the ages have started to get rid of certain attributes. Well, let's get rid of, it by, let's get rid of the problem by saying God's not sovereign or that there isn't a God, or that he's not just, or wise, or whatever it may be. And so God's character is brought into question here. Is he really good? Is he really sovereign? Is he really wise? Does he really care? You see, these are not small, trite questions. These are some of the most important questions we can ask about the God who is sovereign and in control of all things. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the problem of evil. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to explore with us three evils in the world and then explain how God will deal with evil in the world. So three evils in the world and then see how God will deal with evil in the world. So let's look at the three evils in the world. And the first evil the preacher explores is the evil of injustice. The evil of injustice. Look at chapter 3 verses 16 through 22 with me. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So the first evil that the preacher explores is the evil of injustice. And what shocks him isn't just that there's injustice in the world. What shocks him is that there is injustice in the very place where there should always be justice. If you look at verse 16, he refers to this place as the place of justice and the place of righteousness. In modern day terms, it would be our, our court system, but back, back then, it would be at the city gate or any place where the elders would congregate to make judicial binding decisions. And what he observes is that in this place of judgment among these men, there was no justice. There was no equity. Instead, there was wickedness and injustice. And I also want you to notice that this is something the preacher observed where? Under the sun. That's one of our key phrases in Ecclesiastes, right? We've seen that as we've gone through this book, what under the sun refers to is life apart from God. Life, living life as if God doesn't exist at all. And given this fact, given this fact that this observation is under the sun, it shouldn't surprise us that the preacher finds no justice in the place of justice. Because those who judge without any thought of God will always judge based on what standard? Their own sense of justice, not God's. And without a view to God's justice, men will always be tempted to judge for their own benefit. Always, hands down. And we see the same thing today, right? This is, this is a, a problem that comes up again and again. Just like he saw injustice in his judicial system, we see injustice in our judicial system, don't we? Let me just give you a few examples 
of miscarriages of justice in our legal system. One such example would be the case of Dred Scott versus Sanford in 1857 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that people of African descent brought into the United States and held as slaves were not protected by the Constitution and could never be U.S. citizens. In essence, what they decided was that slaves were to be treated as private property, not human beings. And I think you'd all agree with me that treating a human being like he's private property and and saying that that is sanctioned by the courts is a great miscarriage of justice. Great miscarriage of justice. Or to bring it to a more recent example, we could look at the case of Roe versus Wade in 1973 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a person has the right to an abortion up to the time of viability. And again, to me, this to me is the greatest injustice, miscarriage of justice in our time. I mean, the numbers alone are staggering. Since 1973, you know how many babies have been aborted in the United States alone? Not the rest of the world, just the United States. Well over 50 million. 50 million babies. There's a reason that they call this the silent holocaust. That's tragic. And you see, God has put judges in place here in America for them to defend those sweet little babies. And instead of giving them justice and protecting and defending them, these judges have dealt these babies injustice and wickedness. But you know, it's real easy for us to point fingers, isn't it? But before we do that, we have to realize that, that the courts, the judicial system, isn't the only place we find injustice, is it? We as Christians are also guilty of injustice and wickedness, aren't we? Just think about your own thoughts towards the people around you. Are you judicial? Are you fair and balanced in your assessment of other people? Or are you judgmental and cruel and always looking down your nose at the people around you? That's injustice. Or here's another way we do it. We become bitter and full of vengeance towards other people when they wrong us. So let me ask you, as you come to worship the Lord together, do you have any grudges that you're holding against someone? Whether that be inside or outside of this body. Do you have a grudge? Do you have something that someone has done against you and you play it over and over and over again in the video player of your mind? Because what I want you to realize is every time you do that, You are just feeding that vengeance and that bitterness and that ill will towards that other person. And you're destroying yourself. And you're being unjust. You're being injustice. You see, we're just as guilty as the rest of the world when it comes to this. And that's not how we're supposed to live. Because God has called us to be a people who love justice. Who love justice to an even greater extent than the judges that he has set up in the court system. We are to be a people who love justice, and yet we fail again and again and again, don't we? So we've seen that injustice is an evil that is rampant in the world. Secondly, let's look at the evil of oppression. The evil of oppression. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 with me. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, 
and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now I can't speak for each and every one of us here this morning, but if you're anything like me, you haven't had much up close and personal exposure to the evils of this world. But there is oppression everywhere, everywhere. All you gotta do is turn on the news or open up the newspaper, and there it is for you to read about. Just a few weeks ago, I was reading about the political unrest in Syria and how the president, Bashar Assad, has been responding brutally in order to maintain his power. And so far, he has killed well over a thousand of his own people and detained about 10,000, all to be able to to keep his power. But the most heart-wrenching things for me to read about are his brutal tactics towards his non-violent protesters. He's got a bunch of people that aren't doing anything, you know, violence, violent-wise, they're just protesting. And I'll spare you the details, but one of his victims was a 13-year-old boy. 13-year-old boy. And, and when, when, the, when he was returned back to the parents, he was mutilated, he was disfigured, and parts of his body were missing. Oppression. Oppression on the weak, on the part of the strong. It doesn't get much weaker than a 13-year-old boy. We don't even have categories for this kind of thing here in the States. But the fact of the matter is, this sort of oppression is commonplace all across the rest of the globe. All across the rest of the world. Just this past week I was reading about a group of Christians in Pakistan who were meeting for worship, much like we are right now. And halfway through their service, imagine this happening to us, five men walked into the church armed with guns and proceeded to break the altar throw copies of Bibles against the wall, and then desecrate the cross. And right before they left, they picked out three elderly people from the congregation, and they beat them with bamboo sticks. Well, thankfully, nobody was killed. But can you imagine that? If that happened this morning, would any of you ever come back again? Probably not. But you see, this is what our brothers and sisters across the globe are putting up with constantly. Constantly. But again, we as Christians, before we point our finger at the outside world, we're guilty of oppression as well, aren't we? It may not be to the extent that we just heard about. Those are extreme examples. But we still oppress one another. Husbands, just think about your relationships with your wives. By God's grace, you've been called to a position of authority over your wife so that you can serve her and pour your life out for her, even as Christ did for the church. But if you're honest with yourself, you use that authority to oppress her from time to time, don't you? Rather than using your authority to serve her well as God intended, you use it to crush her. Instead of living with her in an understanding way, you use your authority to slack off and act like a child in an adult's body. Instead of washing her with the water of the word, you use scripture as a club to beat her with into submission. Instead of sacrificially loving her, you harshly demand that she respect and serve you. You see how we do this? It's it's oppression. And parents, you do this to your kids, don't you? 
Rather than serving them with the God-given authority you, that you have, you often oppress them rather than serve them. Rather than loving them and raising them in the discipline of the Lord, you often provoke them to anger, don't you? Rather than teaching them that they should submit themselves to God for his glory, you train them that they should submit themselves to you for your glory. See, oppression isn't just outside the church in the big bad world by those big bad people. We oppress each other as well, don't we? Not to mention in our jobs and all of the other arenas of life. So we've explored the evil of injustice, the evil of oppression, and thirdly, let's look at the evil of envy. The evil of envy. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 with me. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hand, his hands, and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Final evil that the preacher explores for us is the evil of envy. And interestingly enough, what he tells us is that envy is the motive behind all our work and skill and toil. All of it. And you know what? It shouldn't take much to convince us that this is true, should it? Because we've had a front row seat to see how envy is the motive behind all of our work. Just think of the economic meltdown that we've had recently. What caused that? Why did that happen? What was the motive behind all the people, all of us, everybody involved in this? Envy. Corporations being envious of other corporations. Consumers being envious of other consumers. Biting off way more than we can chew. Taking out way more equity of our homes than we actually had trying to purchase homes that were more money than we could actually afford. Envy was what drove that. And we're still paying the piper for it. And again, as Christians, we're guilty of this as well, aren't we? Let me just ask you. And by the way, I'm guilty of all of these, so they came from personal experience. Have you ever been driven to study more of your Bible because you were envious of how someone else was respected for their Bible knowledge? Now, Bible knowledge is great, right? We should read and study our Bibles, but if our motivation to do so is to get respect from other people, as much respect as other people are getting, then that's envy. Or have you ever lied about something or withheld certain information from someone so that they would think that you were as holy as another person? What do we call that? Hypocrite, right? And let's be honest, how many of us have been motivated to do better at our job because we were envy of the praise that someone else received or the money that someone else is making? How many of us are envious of other people's bodies and that's the motivation behind why we work out and eat healthy? Or how many of you are envious of someone else's kids and that's the motivation behind why you discipline your own children? (laughs) See, if we're honest with ourselves, I laugh, but this is really sad. We can all confess with the author, uh, Gore Vidal, when he said that every time one of my friends succeeds, a little part of me dies. And that's, that's the case, isn't it? That's not the way it's supposed to be. But we find that within our own hearts. So the preacher has looked at all of these evils in the world, all of these evils, and he says, if God is in control of all these things, how can he answer for it? How can he answer for all this evil in the world? 
And the first thing I want you to notice is that the preacher does not give us a complicated philosophical explanation, does he? You can't find that anywhere in this text here. He doesn't explain how it can be that God is 100% responsible, excuse me, did I say man? How man is 100% responsible for evil and God is 100% sovereign over evil. And by the way, we aren't given that explanation anywhere in the Bible. The Bible doesn't explain away this tension. It simply presents it to us as truth. And while there are many places in the Bible where we can see this, let me just point one example to you. Um, in Acts 2.23, while Peter is pre preaching at Pentecost, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, that is the Jews, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now what's he saying there? Jesus was crucified according to, to God's plan. God ordained that that would happen. And they're responsible for doing it. You don't get anything more clear than that in Scripture. Acts 2, 23. God's not responsible for it. They are, and yet he's sovereign and ordained it all. See, the Bible simply presents this tension to us, puts these things to, right next to each other and says, you gotta deal with it. You gotta live with that tension. Okay, so if he doesn't give us an answer here, how does the, the preacher answer the problem? Well, let's take a look. And here's our final point. How God will deal with evil in the world. How God will deal with evil in the world. And look back at chapter 3, uh, verse 17 with me. Chapter 3, verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. You see, the preacher makes it abundantly clear for us that the only hope we have for justice in this world is if God is the one who does the judging. If it's up to human courts, if it's up to us, justice will never be served. As much as we may want to be a part of the solution, as much as we may want to see the world made right, we mess the whole thing up. But that's why the Bible reveals to us that God has appointed a day when he will judge all mankind, the righteous and the wicked, and then justice will reign over all the earth. But you know, if we're, on, if we're true to, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes that's a more frightening prospect than it is comforting, isn't it? Because as we've seen, even as Christians, we're a part of the problem. As much as we may want to be a part of the solution, we're still guilty. And we stand condemned along with the rest of the world. Because God hates the evils of injustice and oppression and envy. And we're guilty of all of that. And God hates all of this with a holy, perfect, righteous, just wrath. And who can stand before that? Who can stand? So you see, our real problem isn't the problem of evil. Our real problem is how we can stand before a God who judges in perfect righteousness and holiness. What hope do we have that we can stand before this awesome and mighty judge? And you know what? Our only hope, our only hope is in Jesus. 
You see, under the gaze of God, each and every one of us falls short. None of us can measure up to God's holiness. And that's why Jesus, the God-man, had to come. He came to live his entire life perfectly submitted to God's law. You see, when Jesus' life was judged by God, it passed the test. It passed the same test that your life and my life miserably fail each and every day. And you see, when Jesus died on that cross, he experienced all of the judgment that you and I deserve. God judged Jesus as if he had committed all of our sin and then crushed him in our place. And then a most glorious thing happened. He didn't stay dead. After three days in the grave, Jesus rose back to life. And you know what his resurrection tells us? His resurrection tells us that Jesus' life and death passed the test of God's perfect judgment. And I want you to hear this. Because we are now united to Jesus by grace through faith, we have passed the test of God's judgment. You see, we are no longer under God's judgment. We are now under God's favor, his blessing, his grace, his mercy. And so we can rejoice as we wait for Jesus to come back to judge the living and the dead. We can rejoice because we know that when he comes, he comes not to judge us, but to fully and finally save us. Now let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you are no longer being scrutinized by the Father? You are no longer under his judgment because Jesus was judged in your place? Do you believe that? That Jesus, the judge, was judged in our place so that we don't have to be judged? Because if you do, that changes everything for us. Changes everything. When we see all of the injustice around us and we experience it, we can entrust ourselves and our cause to God. We can be free from vengeance and bitterness because we know that God has appointed a day of judgment. God will right every wrong so we don't have to try to take matters into our own hands. We are now free to love our enemies through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And when we are unjust and judgmental to other people, in our thoughts and in our actions, we can know that we will be forgiven when we repent and then go on to put off the old man and put on the new man. And when we see and experience all of the oppression around us, we can be free from entering into the power struggles that we all do on a daily basis because we know that God is sovereign and he has appointed the day of judgment so we can love and submit to others even when we are being oppressed by them. And by the comfort with which we have been comforted, we can then comfort those who are experiencing oppression as well. And rather than abusing the authority that God gives us, we can use it to serve others and love them well. And when we are tempted to be envy, we can remind ourselves that when Jesus comes again, all will be his. The, the heavens and the earth are his inheritance. And guess what? Because we're in him, we're co-heirs. 
So all is going to be ours. So what do we have to be envious of? Everything's ours in Jesus. So we don't have to grasp after security and comfort because it's all ours. You see, brothers and sisters, we can trust God in these dark days amidst this world of evil within and without because we know that God has appointed the day when he will judge the living and the dead. And we can also know and rejoice and rest in the truth that we will stand on that great day because of Jesus, because he was judged in our place. And in the meantime, as we wait for that blessed day, we can sing with the old hymn writer, William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in his dark and hidden minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by the injustice and oppression and envy that we see not only around us, not only across the globe, not only in the world, but Father, even within our own hearts. We acknowledge that, Lord, we, we are unjust in our thoughts and actions towards each other. We, are, we oppress each other in the way that we wield the authority that you have given us. And we are envious of each other, even though you have told us that we are to be content and we can be content in Jesus and all that he's given us. But, Lord, we're thankful that we no longer sit under your judgment seat we're no longer those who are constantly being scrutinized by you because Jesus was judged in our place. Jesus, the judge, came on the other side of the bar and stood in judgment for us, living the perfect life that we failed to and experiencing all of the just judgments and penalties and wrath that we deserved in our place so that we can now know that we are loved and accepted and rejoiced over by you. Father, we are so thankful for that. 
And we're thankful that as we not only commit these sins against each other, but also have them committed against us, that we can entrust all of our hurts and our pains and our wounds to you. All the injustice that we experience, we can wait for you to come back, knowing that you will make every wrong right. You will make all things new. And in the meantime, as we wait for you to do this, as we wait for your perfect time, and we can confess together that you do move in a mysterious way, and we can still confess together, blessed be your name. We love you and ask that you would now take your word and cause it to be effectual in our hearts to transform us so that we would then be conformed more and more to the image of our risen Lord and Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the judge of all creation, Jesus Christ. Amen.